The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. We continue now in our summer series, various subjects that you had interest in, and you gave me those topics. had about 30 suggestions, had to narrow it down to the 10 most popular ones. And one of the most popular ones that was requested, that what does the Bible have to say about that? This issue was homosexuality. So that is the topic of today's sermon. What does the Bible say about homosexuality? So let's go ahead and look at it. Believe me, I am aware this is a sensitive topic. Being that we live in the Bay Area of the state of California in 2009, it didn't surprise me that there were many people who wanted to directly address this issue of homosexuality and what the Bible has to say about homosexuality. I want to reiterate the title, What the Bible Says About Homosexuality. Hopefully it's not what Pastor Cliff's biased opinion is about homosexuality. It's what does the Bible say. We're just a very simple survey, objective look at what Scripture, both Old Testament, New Testament, Jesus Himself has to say about this topic of homosexuality. Since the 1960s, so we're going on five decades now, radical homosexual activists have been on a crusade to mainstream their compromised lifestyle and foist their abnormal worldview on the rest of American society. And through the media, the Hollywood community, pragmatic and sellout politicians, out of touch judges, along with a relentless, volatile, unabashed, intimidating, in-your-face, organized public campaign and approach, they have been highly successful over the course of five decades regarding mainstreaming the homosexual lifestyle in mainstream America. The net result is that gay is everywhere today, especially if you live in this area. It would be comparable to Corinth in the time of the Apostle Paul. Blatant, unabashed, unmitigated sexual immorality, really of all sorts, everywhere. Gays everywhere. And we are told to believe that it is normative, that it is natural, that it is okay, that it is harmless, that it is even good and spiritual. There are gay churches springing up, and there have been for three decades now. Metropolitan Community Church started in Los Angeles, spreading all over the place. Gay pastors, gay churches, gay Christians, they tell us, even spiritualizing it. Newsweek magazine just did a major feature article on this topic. We're also told if you have a different view on the issue than what they have, or even if you disagree with what they're saying, then you will be labeled as hateful, prejudiced, bigoted, or as a homophobe. Phobe, phobia, fear of. Fear of homosexuality, so homophobe. Since the 1960s, gays have successfully stepped out of the closet, into the open, onto the silver screen, making movies, TV, Hollywood, over the airwaves, on the campaign trail, taking political positions of power, influencing public education and curriculum, 
and even reaching into the taxpayer's pocketbook to pay for some of these things. For example, here in the state of California, there's a bill right now that is going to end up on Arnold Schwarzenegger's desk as the governor of California, and he has to either vote yes or no on it, veto it or not veto it, about how the public schools are going to be mandatorily expected to celebrate Harvey Milk Day. He was a gay politician in San Francisco in the 1970s. An immoral man, really. Yet he's going to be celebrated in a mandatory fashion here in our public schools from first grade on up, kindergarten on up. Maybe you're a homeschool parent thinking, well, that doesn't affect me. I don't really care. I'm not paying attention. Well, you better care because if you have a job or somebody in your house works and pays taxes, it affects you as a taxpayer because they're going to fund this and the propagation of it with taxpayers' money, whether you support it or not. So that's just one example. I can give many more examples. But my intention is not to be political this morning. I said all that just to let you know this is relevant and affects everybody, especially if you live in this area. It affects everybody. I know this firsthand because my daughter goes to local public high school, Cupertino High School, and we were awakened to this. We homeschooled our children, and then we sent them off to public school, heard about things in the public school system, didn't know how bad it was in terms of political activism, and sure enough, for freshman year, we were getting inundated, inundated and in your face with the pro-gay agenda. And I had a meeting with one of the teachers at the school and a chairman of the department, so I went on the campus to meet with the chairman and the teacher to discuss compromised, illegitimate stuff they were talking about in the classroom and forcing the students to read. I'm an educator, was trained as an educator, taught in the classroom for years. So I go on the campus, waiting outside the door. I enter into the classroom. I sit down, and before me uh, is the chalkboard, and then the other half of the entire wall is covered with the words, the gay board. And then a pocket of it says, free Gay, lesbian, transsexual reading material. And they have a gay and lesbian club on campus. This is where one of my children goes to school. This is being supported by taxpayer money. So it was like the light went on for me. Oh, here we are. It's a reality. It's in our backyard. It's in my daughter's backpack in her homework. Got to deal with it. How do we respond as Christians? So it's real. It affects all of us. And as a Christian, you have to have a biblical response. Because Christians don't all respond the, right, or the same way to the homosexual question. They don't all respond the same way. Many times Christians don't respond the correct way. There are Christians who do respond the correct way. But here's some typical approaches of how churches respond. Some people would say I shouldn't even be preaching on homosexuality. That has nothing to do with the Bible. It is not relevant. I totally disagree. It's all over the Bible. God talks about it. He addresses it. He addresses it point blank, black and white, very simply. But here's some typical church's approaches to this issue of homosexuality. First approach is the approach of tolerance, I call it. Tolerance. These are, I'm talking about Bible-believing, so-called evangelical Christian churches, many of which are in our area right here, many of which you would know them if I named them, have the approach of tolerance when it comes to homosexuality. This is out of a newspaper article, uh, June 19, 2009, out of the Mountain View Voice. That is in this city. This city's newspaper, quote, long old article about one of the largest growing, most thriving churches in the area, over by Costco, which shall remain nameless. So-called Bible church. Here's some quotes 
One of the reasons that this church is thriving, supposedly, and growing like crazy is they have a tolerant view. They pride themselves on tolerance. The pastor preaches, quote, a message of tolerance and diversity, end quote. And his sermons are, quote, humorous and sometimes theatrical, end quote. I am not humorous, I've been told. <laughs> Quit laughing. Um, the article goes on. This church, this thriving, fantastically growing, exciting so-called Bible church, quote, their recipe for growth involves a certain tolerance for diversity, both ethnic and political slash social on social or political issues. For example, this is still a quote. For example, the church does not take political positions on issues such as gay marriage or abortion. We, we just won't comment on it. Oh, well, that's really helpful. Why? It goes on. This is quoting one of the assistant pastors, by the way. He's being quoted. We don't take political positions on issues such as gay marriage or abortion because they can be incredibly divisive. Therefore, we won't talk about it. If a topic is divisive, we, we shy away from it and we won't talk about it. When the Bible tells the pastor, the man of God, in the book of Timothy, preach the Word. Whether it's divisive or not has nothing to do with it. The issue is, is it true? Truth divides. Truth sometimes can be perceived as offensive. Really. We've been going through the Gospel of John. Jesus was perceived as being very divisive. Why? Because He spoke truth in an uncompromised manner. His intention was not to be ostracizing people. He was incarnate love. But truth divides. Truth offends sinners and their sensibilities. We don't want to be like this church, the tolerant church. No, we want to welcome sinners. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about tolerating specifically rejected teachings and beliefs that the Bible is crystal clear on. Tolerance. There's the other, many other churches have the approach of number two, avoidance. So there's tolerance, or you could be a church, just avoid the issue altogether. We're not going to talk about it. Many churches ignore the issue altogether, sometimes out of fear or just downright cowardice or ignorance or just blatant compromise. That's just reality. Here's a quote out of another newspaper. California megachurch pastor and author of The Purpose Driven Life, Rick Warren. I'm not reading this to pick on Rick Warren because, I mean... I've benefited from one of Rick Warren's books, but this is just reality. California's mega church pastor and author of The Purpose Driven Life, Rick Warren, says that he apologized to his homosexual friends for making comments in support of California's Proposition 8 and now claims he, quote, never once even gave an endorsement, end quote, of the Marriage Amendment Proposition 8. Monday night on CNN's Larry King Live, Larry King was interviewing Rick Warren, uh, Pastor Rick Warren apologized for his support of Proposition 8. He apologized for Proposition 8. He apologized for the God-ordained definition of marriage. Proposition 8, you know what it says? That marriage is between one man and one woman. That's it. The state of California did not make that up. God did 6,000 years ago in Genesis chapter 2. So when I was talking about Proposition 8... I was supporting and promoting what God has clearly said and defined as did Jesus in Matthew 19. And people try to tell us, well, you can't preach on that. It's, it's not a religious issue. Yeah, it's a biblical issue. It's a God issue. It's in the Bible. It's a spiritual issue. 
So it's not hands-off. So there's tolerance by churches, and then there's avoidance by other churches. And then the worst is acceptance by churches, if you can call them churches. They're all over the place. Starting in the 70s, Protestant denominations began to ordain gay people openly. Protestant denominations. By the way, the official position of the Catholic Church is still the same. They consider homosexuality a sin and abomination. The Roman Catholic Church has not changed its position. That is their formal position. That's one billion Catholics on planet Earth. Islam rejects homosexuality. There's another billion people on Earth. But there's, there are so-called Protestant Christians that have the acceptance attitude, and that simply is the Methodist Church is one example, a local Methodist church here. Uh, the pastor wrote a 10-page paper, posted it on the web for the whole world to see. I read it, printed it off. And basically his theme is gay is okay. Jesus said it was okay. It's normal. And yet he's a pastor and he calls himself a representative of God and God's truth. That's a dangerous thing to be doing that. To be distorting truth and misleading people. I don't think it's a whole, really a controversial subject if, in the big picture of things. Like I just said, a billion Muslims should reject homosexuality as normative. A billion Catholics should, according to their doctrine. The majority of States in the United States have already made marriage amendments defining marriage as one man, one woman, 30 out of 30. Every time it's been voted on, 30 out of 30. That's not controversial. Even here in liberal California, we voted for Proposition 8. The majority of Californian people who voted, voted saying, yes, I believe that marriage is between one man and one woman. What amazes me, so in November, we voted on Proposition 8. Seven million Californians voted yes for Proposition 8, that marriage is between one man and one woman. What amazes me is that 6,400,000 Californians voted against Proposition 8. And what amazes me about that is of those 6,400,000, most of those people are not homosexuals. They are avowed heterosexuals, and they actually believe, well, homosexuality is not for me. I don't even believe it's right, but they voted anyway. That's amazing. Many voted out of just political pressure. Uh, many probably voted out of compromise because they knew out of guilt they're sinful and they have their vices, so I'm going to allow that guy his vice if he allows me my vice to appease their conscience. That's what sinners do. But anyway, so much for the introduction. Let's go ahead and look to see what God's Word has to say about homosexuality. I want to start by first defining homosexuality not taking anything for granted because I was talking to one of our people and they had a very basic question and they said, can't you be a Christian homosexual? And I said, no. And they were surprised. And I thought, well, I thought you could. And I said, no. So that needs to be defined. What is a homosexual? Uh, how I'm defining it today. A homosexual is a person who lives a lifestyle. Okay, this is an ongoing, regular, outgoing lifestyle. A pattern of behavior in an ongoing manner. A person who lives a lifestyle of inappropriate attraction, affection, and sex towards someone of the same gender. And they do not see this practice or this lifestyle as wrong or sinful. In other words, they would admit that they are a homosexual and they would say it is not sin, it is not wrong. Whereas Scripture is clear. That kind of affection and sexual practice towards someone of the same gender is wrong. God defined it as homosexuality and it is wrong, it is sinful. So a homosexual is somebody who practices this willingly, unabashedly so. Because there are Christians, people who have been born again, who may struggle with the lust of homosexuality at times, periodically, and maybe even stumble in that area. These are two totally different things I'm talking about, and I will address that point a little later. But let's start with the foundation. Four points I want to highlight on what the Bible has to say about homosexuality. 
And point number one is that God created marriage. That's where we need to start in this debate and discussion. God created marriage. Where did marriage come from? Radical homosexuals in the state of California want to redefine marriage as though they have the prerogative to do so. They don't have the prerogative to do so. God designed marriage. He created marriage. He established marriage from the very beginning. God created marriage. Three points about that. Letter A, He designed it. So He created marriage. He designed it the way it should be. Genesis 2. God creates everything in the first week. He creates the first man. He creates Adam. Adam was a real person, by the way. The Lord God said it is not good for Adam to be alone. It is not good for the man to be alone by himself. This is before sin entered the world. Think about it. This is before the curse. This is before Adam had indwelling sin. It was not good for man, Adam, to be alone, to be isolated, to be by himself. That was not God's perfect plan at the time for Adam to be by himself. Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. The Hebrew is very specific here. I am going to make a perfect complement to him in every way. In other words, the being that I will give to Adam will not be the same kind of being. Homo means the same. Hetero, different. A different being. That's what this is saying. Adam needs a different being that will complement him in every way, even physically, anatomically, sexually, emotionally, so that the two, when they come together, it's like two pieces of a puzzle. It is a perfect fit the way God designed it. That's what that means. I will make him a helper suitable for him, not a helper that is the same as him. That's what God said. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from Adam. God put Adam to sleep literally. He took a rib out of Adam literally. He took that literal rib and he made a human being a woman. And gave that woman to Adam, and God performed the first wedding that ever took place between Adam and Eve. Man and woman brought the woman to man, and God performed that first wedding. He blessed it. He pronounced blessing on it, and He said the two shall become one flesh. God designed marriage. B, He defined it. What is it composed of? It's not a man and a man. Or as some religious theologies try to say, that it could be three people or four people or polygamy like Joseph Smith who had 16 wives and Brigham Young who had 64 and uh, Muhammad, who had 16 wives. Polygamy. Polygamy is taught in the Quran. You can have four wives if you're a Muslim man. No, God rejects polygamy. So how did God define it? Well, uh, again, in Genesis 2.24, for this cause, after God created Adam and Eve, for this reason, or from now on, or the precedent has been set and forever shall be the case, for this cause, a man... Male, singular. Very important. He's now defining what marriage is. For this cause, a man, a male, shall leave his father and mother. Notice, father, a father, singular, masculine. Mother, singular, female. That was already the pattern. Father and mother. Monogamous. Heterosexual. Marriage. A man shall leave his one father and his one mother, and he shall cleave or be attached to or glued to his new wife, singular, female. And they, those two, the man and the woman, singular, shall become one flesh before God. Jesus reiterated this in, in the Gospels. Marriage is defined by God. One man, one woman, together, before God, for life. And then finally, because God created marriage, He defends it. He will defend marriage. That's why I was not getting in an uproar of Proposition 8 at the time of the election. Oh, what if Proposition 8 is rejected and the state of California uh, redefines marriage? Well, as a Christian, I'm thinking they're not going to redefine marriage because God is the one that created it. God's, he is more 
uh, passionate about defending his institution of marriage than I am. And God is more powerful than I am. And he knows everything. God's got everything under control. So we don't need to get bent out of shape. God will defend his institution of marriage. Hebrews 13.4 explicitly says, Let marriage be held in honor only among fundamentalist Bible-believing Christians. Is that what it says? No. Let me read it again. Hebrews 13.4. This is a command from God. Let marriage, or the institution of it, one man, one woman, as God defined it and created it, let marriage be held in honor among all. Redefining it is not honoring it. Everybody is accountable. God created it. God created everybody. Everybody is accountable to God the Creator, even in the institution of marriage. It is the rock bed is the foundation of all of society. Let marriage be held... By the way, this is in the New Testament. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed, literally the Greek word coitus, that's sexual intercourse, explicit. Let the marriage... The institution of marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed, sexual intercourse, be undefiled between one man, one woman, as God has explained. For fornicators, those who violate the institution of marriage, fornicators is anybody that has uh, sex outside of the context of marriage with one man, one woman. So this could be a man and a woman having sexual intercourse who aren't married. They're violating God's standard. They're violating marriage, even though they're one man, one woman. That's just as bad as homosexuality. Fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. In some way, he will have his way. He will protect his institution of marriage. Uh, Whoopi Goldberg used to have a talk radio show for about two years, 2006 to 2008 in the mornings. And I used to listen to her every once in a while when I was bored. And I just remember during uh, this issue of the homosexual debate, she just said categorically, dogmatically, with fervency to her callers, you know what we need to do to set this country and this world straight is we need to eradicate the traditional institution of marriage. That's what she said. Wow. And it was in the context of talking about approving gay marriage. So if Whoopi Goldberg had her way, traditional marriage is designed and defined and created by God, will be deconstructed, eradicated, gone. And some people fear that that will happen. I'm just telling you right now, that is not going to happen. God will defend it. He will protect it. It is His. He has a passion for it. He's in charge. He's all-powerful. He knows everything. He is the judge. And Jesus made a prophecy about it in Matthew 24, verse 38. Jesus said, When I come at the end of the age... When I come, people will be marrying and be given in marriage. And Jesus' understanding was that was the normal means of marriage, the way God defined it, between one man, one woman. Jesus promised the institution of marriage as we know it traditionally will be around. It will be fine. Things will be going well. As always, at the time of Christ's return, God will defend it. So point number two after God created marriage is that homosexuality is sinful. In other words, homosexuality is a sin. got to start here because, like I said, there are so-called Christian churches that are gay churches. Metropolitan Community Church. That's one of the most famous ones. Thousands of people go there. The pastor calls himself a Christian. He is a so-called Bible teacher. And he says homosexuality is not a sin. As a matter of fact, homosexuality is a good thing. As a matter of fact, Jonathan and David were homosexuals. Jesus and John the Apostle were homosexuals. And on and on it goes. Totally distorting Scripture, which is blasphemous. But that's what they teach. They teach it unabashedly. And they're gaining disciples. It's an issue we need to deal with. So... Go back to square one. Homosexuality is a sin. Scripture is clear on this. Uh, the book of Leviticus in chapter 18, I'm not going to read the whole thing. The whole chapter in Leviticus 18 is about deviant, sexual, sinful behavior that is an abomination to God that should be rejected. And it's not just homosexuality. It rejects bestiality. It rejects incest. 
uh, condemns all kinds of deviant sexual behavior outside the marriage relationship between a man and a woman. And one of those explicitly, Leviticus 18.22 says, God said, you shall not lie. You shall not have sex. You shall not lay down with, be in bed with a male as one lies with a female. That's God's nuanced way or couched way of describing homosexuality. In other words, God is saying homosexuality, it is wrong. Not only is it wrong, at the end of the verse it says, it is an abomination. That's a strong word. It means it is detestable. It is filthy. It is detestable. That's what God feels about it. I know those are strong words. I remember being at a little seminar with a Christian leader who was gay for many years, supposedly became a Christian, and now tries to help other gay people. <clears throat> And I think help them become Christians. And I, we were interacting in front of the seminar and I, I wanted to read a verse and I read a verse out of the Bible and I read Leviticus uh, 18 to everybody that was there. Verse 22. And I said, You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. And he actually rebuked me in front of everybody and said, You can't say that word. I said, What word? Abomination. You can't call homosexuality an abomination. You've got to water it down. You've got to tone it down. You'll ostracize too many people. That's offensive. I said, well, I didn't make it up. I was just reading the Bible. Well, you can't do that. You'll lose them. And I said, well, I'm just reading the Bible. I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to teach the Bible. So we can't compromise. God said it's an abomination. It's not the only sin that's an abomination, but it is an abomination. Uh, going on, it is unnatural. So not only is it an abomination, it's sinful. It is unnatural. That's what they're trying to tell us. They're trying to get us to believe that homosexuality is normal. It is normative. It is natural. It is not natural at all. God's Word is clear. Romans chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. God talks about homosexuality and lesbianism. And He defines it like this. Quote, this is God talking through the Apostle Paul. They're women. Unbelieving, sinful, hardened, calloused women who have rejected the truth of God. That's who? Who are now at the bottom of the barrel in terms of being hardened sinners. What are they doing? Well, their women exchanged the natural function of marriage, a woman with a man. They exchanged that natural design of God for that which is unnatural. What is that? Lesbianism. And in the same way also the men abandoned their natural function of the woman to be married to a man being married to a woman. They abandoned that. And they burned in their lusts towards one another. Gay men. That's what it's talking about. It is a burning sexual lust that drives them. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own bodies the due penalty of their error. Romans chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. So it is unnatural. It is even anatomically unnatural. They don't, the pieces don't fit. A man and his body parts and a woman and her body parts. That fits. Man and man, no. It doesn't work that way. That was not God's design. God's natural design, anatomically speaking, is for one man, one woman, face to face. The closest picture of intimacy there is on planet earth. They say that every other living being, whether it's an animal or insects, the way they reproduce, they don't do it face to face. Humanity is the only one. Man, woman, together, face to face, is a picture of God. Romans chapter, or John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus the Word was face to face with the Father in intimacy before the creation of the world. That is the picture of marriage. It's a picture of 
the Trinity's relationship. And then finally, homosexuality is sinful because it's unnatural, it's abomination, and the last one is it's an expression of lust. We saw that already in Romans chapter 1. They were burning in their desires for sex. They say that women become lesbians because they desire a relationship at an intimate level that they can't get with men. And that men become homosexuals because they desire sex at a deeper level that they can't have with women for whatever reason. They're driven by sex, women by relationships, so they say. That's just a characterization. But Romans 1.27 says that the men burned in their lusts towards one another. 1 John 2.16 says the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life are the root of all sin. Any kind of sexual deviant behavior, sexual sin, the root of it is the lust of the flesh. Uh, Look at Genesis 19, because I want to read this to show you the burning lust that can drive the sin of homosexuality beyond a level that is even comprehensible. This is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Chapter 18, God tells Abraham, I'm going to destroy the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham says, God, please don't. Abraham prays for Sodom and Gomorrah. But God's going to do it anyway because they have categorically rejected God. So God sends two angels to the city of Sodom to destroy it, to punish it on the behalf of God because of their sin. Sodom is filled with homosexuals, homosexual men. We know that from the story in Genesis 19. Just want to read a few verses right out of God's Word. Genesis 19, starting at verse 1. So the two angels leave Abraham's presence. They go to the city of Sodom. Abraham's nephew Lot lives in Sodom. He recently moved there and resides there. He's a new person to the town there. Maybe Lot probably doesn't even know. It's like modern or Corinth or modern-day San Francisco. It's even worse because the majority of the people apparently were uh, homosexual or lesbian. And it says the two angels that came to Sodom, they came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. So Lot is out in the city. When Lot saw the two angels, wow, these angels looked like men. They caught his eye because they looked a little different. Probably because they were holy angels. Lot saw the angels. He rose up to meet them. He bowed down his face to them. He knew these are not normal human beings. Maybe he knew they were angels sent from God. Verse 2, Lot said, Now behold my lords. And he's talking to these angels and he calls them masters or lords. Please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night at my house and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way and leave this town. And they said, the angels, however, said to Lot, No, but we shall spend the night in the square out here in the public square. We're going to spend the night out on the street here. And Lot's, no, you cannot do that. You don't know what's, what kind of people live in this town. Verse 3, and that's why Lot urged the angels very strongly. So they turned aside. They listened to Lot. They entered Lot's house and stayed there. Lot prepared a feast or dinner for them and baked unleavened bread. And the angels ate because they had human bodies. Before everybody went to bed that night, to fall asleep before they lay down, the men of Sodom, the men of the city, surrounded Lot's house. We've got a mob on our hands. Get this, both young and old men. All the people from every quarter of the city. And they shouted out to Lot and screamed, saying to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Those two men. Bring those two men out to us that we may have relations with them. We want to rape them. That's what they're saying. 
So the men of the city saw these two strangers visit town. They were male personages, delightful to the lusts of the eyes of these men. So they converged on Lot's house. Verse 6, Lot panics. Lot went out. So he leaves his house, closes the front door, protecting the front door so the men can't go in the house. He shut the door behind him and he said, Please, brethren, do not act wickedly. Do not rape these men. Now behold, I have two daughters who are virgins. Please, let me bring my daughters out to you and you can do whatever you like. Wow. Lot has lost his senses here. Only do nothing to these men who are in my house inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof and they are my guests. But the men of Sodom said, Stand aside or move over. Here we come. They're just going to barge the door down. Furthermore, they said, they said about Lot who was a new guy to town, this one came into our town as an alien and as a stranger and already he's acting like a judge over us. Now we will treat you worse than them, Lot. So they threaten, they threaten Lot. Not just to rape him, but to do worse. So they pressed hard against Lot and they came near to break down the door. But the angels who were inside Lot's house reached their hands out the door and they brought Lot into the house, saved by an angel. Literally. Brought Lot into the house And these two angels shut the door. They can do it because they're supernatural, all-powerful, superheroes. They shut the door. Verse 11, and they struck, get this, the angels struck the men of Sodom who were at the door of the house with blindness. Boom! Instantaneously. Cursed with blindness. All these gay homosexual men on the porch. Can't see anything. Struck the men with blindness both small and great, so that they, get this, they continued to weary themselves trying to find the doorway. They just got blinded by God. That did not subside their lusts. They're still trying to break down the door to rape those two angels. Then the men, or the angels said to Lot, or I mean the men of Sodom said, oh no, yeah, it's the uh, angels said to Lot, who else do you have here in your house? Uh, A son-in-law and your sons and your daughters? And whoever you have in the city, bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place because their outcry has been, become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us, angels, to destroy it. And then you can read the rest of the story. So there's just an example. That is a real historical incident that happened showing the passion, the lust that can drive a certain deviant behavior. And it's not just homosexuality. Some people say, well, homosexuality is genetic. I would say yes and no. Every human being is born with a sin nature. Every human being is conceived in sin and has a sin nature. Every human being has lust living in them. If you are a Christian today, you have lust living in you. I have lust living in me. That's what the Word of God says. 1 Peter 2.11, Peter talking to Christians says, don't succumb to your lusts that wage war against your soul. So everybody has lust. So is lust genetic? Yeah, we're born with it. We got it. We inherited it from Adam and Eve. Is the specific sin of homosexuality genetic? No. It's just one form of expression of lust. We all struggle with lust. We all need to combat lust in our lives and try to overcome it with God's Word and His help and the indwelling Holy Spirit and confession and accountability and the Word of God and Christian maturity. So everybody struggles with lust. The question is, what kind of lust do you struggle with? And how do you deal with your lust? Are you willing to admit your lust and call it a sin? That's the difference between my sin and Uh, professing homosexual is the only difference is I have admitted to God that I am a sinner. I need His forgiveness. I need Him to save me. 
And I submit my life to You, Lord Jesus. I am sinful. I am wicked. I am an abomination. And the Lord Jesus Christ heard my cry and He saved me from my sin, including my lust, the lust of my flesh, the lust of my eyes, and the boastful pride of my life. So, keep that in mind. Lust is a reality in the heart of every single human being. The question is, how does it manifest itself and how do you deal with it or do you deal with it? Let's go on to point number three. I said homosexuality is sinful, but number three, very important for a Christian to understand this. Homosexuality, oh yeah, the last two. Homosexuality is a unique sin. It's not the worst sin. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that homosexuality is the worst sin. I'm saying it is a different kind of sin. It is a unique sin. It's not the worst sin. It's not an unpardonable sin. It's a difference. It is unique in that three things. It is destructive. We saw that in Romans 1.27. Because of the nature of the sin, you do it to your physical body and you do things that God didn't want you to do to your physical body. And your body wasn't made to do the things that they do to their body. You are literally physically being destructive to your body. You can read the stats on HIV or AIDS after 20, 30 years of the trend and the studies. The studies still say the same thing. That here in America, over 80% of people getting AIDS are homosexual men. That stat has not changed. So homosexuality is destructive to the human body because of all the practices that they get involved in. It's a unique sin in that it is a perversion that's unique and distinct from many other sins. It's different than lying. Lying is a sin. But Leviticus 18.27, what God said about homosexuality and bestiality and a lot of these sexual perversions, He said, For the men of the land who have been before you have done all these abominations and the land has become defiled. It is a defiling sin. It is a perversion of the worst order is what it is. In the hierarchy of perversions. You don't start practicing full-fledged homosexuality as soon as you turn 16 or 17. It is a progression to get there. It's a violation of the conscience here, a violation of the conscience here, a test here, a trial here, experimentation here. It is a progression to the bottom. It takes time to get there. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says that the unique thing about the sin of homosexuality and its perversion is that it is a unique sin against the body. Paul says, flee from sexual immorality... Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Sexual immorality against the body. And that is the most enslaving kind of sin. And it's not just with homosexuality. Anytime you commit a sexual sin or a pattern of sexual behavior, maybe it was before you became a Christian, maybe it was growing up, those are the kind of sins that you never forget. And many times they leave a scar for life. Sexual sin. It's a unique kind of sin that we need to guard ourselves and protect ourselves against. And finally, homosexuality is a unique sin in that it is a direct, it is a distortion of God's picture of what He wants to picture in marriage. One man, one woman. That is supposed to be a picture of the intimacy of the Trinity face to face. One man, one woman in marriage is supposed to be a picture and a metaphor, a living metaphor of Christ's relationship with His church in the future. So Paul said in Ephesians 5, Marriage, one man, one woman, is a picture of the church of Jesus Christ as the bride of Christ. Paul says, quote, Husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. This is a mystery and it is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Marriage on earth between one man, one woman is a living, visible, parable or metaphor of the relationship that Jesus Christ will have with His church in the future. A husband and a bride. 
And when you distort that image of marriage, you distort the very image of God Himself, His character, and His plan for the ages with the church. can't do that. That's why God will continue to protect it. So God created marriage. Homosexuality is sinful. Homosexuality is a unique sin. And here's the good news. And there is good news. I don't know, maybe there's somebody in this room that struggles with homosexual lust. I, I believe there is. And with the statistics, there probably is. Maybe you have homosexuality as part of your background. Here's the good news according to the Bible. That's why the Bible has the full picture, the big picture. Number four, homosexuality is a forgivable sin. It is a forgivable sin. There is, there is the myth, even some homosexuals hold to the myth that, well, my sin is too great, God can't forgive it. That's a lie. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Your sin can't out God's grace. Did you know that? As a Savior, speaking of myths, one of the myths that sometimes gay people believe is, my sin is so great, God can't forgive me. My sin is so great, God doesn't want anything to do with me. That is a lie. He can save you from your sin. Here's some other myths about homosexuality. You don't need to write them down, but just so be aware of them. They are myths. They are false. Uh, one of the myths is that homosexuals are happy. That's why they're called gay. They're not happy. They're not content. They aren't. They're actually burdened down continuously with guilt from their conscience and from God. It is not a happy lifestyle. And that's why many times they resort to other things to get rid of the guilt that they have, whether it's destructive behavior or drugs or medication or on and on. That's why they they need constantly affirmation because they're battling with guilt within. That is a myth. That is a lie. Homosexuals are not happy gay people. They are miserable people. Another lie that we heard in California here that homosexuals can be monogamous. Homosexuals, especially men, are not monogamous. Too Too many men have left the homosexual lifestyle, got saved, and wrote a book about it to testify this is not true. These homosexuals say we had countless sexual escapades with all kinds of men. Many partners during a year and throughout a lifetime. Too many to count. Many, I don't even know their names. So this idea that homosexuality is monogamous is a lie. That's not true. It's a myth. Uh, another one we heard is that homosexual, a homosexual couple can make better parents than a heterosexual couple of parents. That is a lie because it's against God's will. Uh, another lie is that People get us to believe that homosexuals don't want to change. Yeah, they do. I've talked to homosexuals. I've given the gospel to homosexuals. I have counseled homosexuals. They want to change. Or if they're honest, they've been trying to change. Some will say, well, they can't change. I've seen them change. That's another myth. They can't change. Another myth about homosexuality, it is unloving and it is not like Jesus to confront their sin head on. Yeah, it is. That's what Jesus did. He did it to the adulterous woman in John 4. Confronted her sin head on. Offered her forgiveness. Saved her from her sin. So probably the most loving thing you can do is expose the cancer of sin in anybody's life. Out of a heart of compassion, knowing that Jesus is the answer. A wonderful Savior. But homosexuality is a forgivable sin. Going back to 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, through 11, the Apostle Paul, writing to the Christians in Corinth at a church plant that Paul started. Paul goes into this unbelievably wicked, evil city called Corinth, worse than San Francisco, California, worse than Amsterdam in terms of sex everywhere. Paul stays there for a year and a half. He plants a church. He raises up leadership. 
He leaves. He writes a couple letters to them. And God saved people in that community. And God saved a lot of very sinful, wicked people out of that community in Corinth. And they continued to live there in the church of Corinth. And they got saved out of all kinds of sinful lifestyles. And that's what 1 Corinthians 6, 9, 11. So Paul is talking to Christians who are now saved and listen to the lifestyle that they were once involved in, that he saved them out of. Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? All that means is unbelievers aren't going to heaven. Do not be deceived. This is what is happening with homosexuality in America and in the church. People are being deceived and they're believing a lie. They're believing those myths I just read. That's why Paul says this. Don't be deceived about homosexuality. Believe what God has said about it. It's going to take courage. Yep. You might be mocked and persecuted. Probably will be. Do not be deceived. If you're a homosexual or a lesbian and you're here this morning, do not be deceived. I've said that to homosexuals to their face trying to share the gospel with them. Don't be deceived. Listen to the truth. I plead with you. Don't be deceived. Here's the truth. Neither fornicators, that's just people having sex outside of marriage. That could be a man and a woman. They're not married. Well, we're engaged. Well, you're still fornicating. God will judge you. If you do it as a regular pattern of lifestyle, you may be manifesting the fact that you're maybe not truly born again. This is talking about patterns of life behavior, not just a periodic incident or a stumble here and there. This is a lifestyle, an admitted professed lifestyle of fornicators like Howard Stern and company. Don't be deceived. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Homosexuals do not go to heaven. Verse 11 is great. This is glorious news. And Paul says, you know what? And such were some of you, Christian. That's what he said. You used to be a homosexual. You used to be a lesbian. And God saved you out of that. He saved you and forgave you of your sin because you recognized it, confessed, repented, sought the Lord Jesus as Savior. He heard your prayer. He's full of love, compassion, and mercy. And He saved you. Such were some of you. You're not like that anymore. You were washed by the blood of Jesus. It means you were forgiven of all your sin. You were sanctified, set apart for God, for a holy purpose, for life. For eternity. You have a new future. You have an ugly past. You have a beautiful future. Sanctified. That's what that means. You were washed. You were sanctified. Going back to that Leviticus 18, uh, homosexuality is detestable. It is dirty. It is filthy. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, you are now washed, cleansed, white as snow. That is the best news in the world for a sinner. Sanctified. You were justified. You know what that means? God looks down on you, born-again Christian, as the judge who sees everything. And when He looks at you, He he slams the gavel down and He says, you are not guilty. You are innocent. Well, I thought homosexuality required the death penalty. It did in the Old Testament. It still does in the New Testament. What? Yes, Jesus Christ paid the death penalty for you and your sin. That's why God the judge can say, not guilty. Guilty. Jesus died for you. God's wrath towards that sin, totally appeased, totally absorbed, washed away. Man, that's good news. That is good news. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the, in the Spirit of our God. Imagine this. You were a homosexual at one time. 
You were filthy and detestable. You cried out to God. He heard your prayer. He saved you. He forgave you of all of your sin. And He put the Holy Spirit of God inside you to help you the rest of your life. We need the Holy Spirit of God living in us because we have to battle the lust that still lives in us every day of our life. And you have the Holy Spirit, your comforter, to help you. Great truth. So the only thing, the only good news for a true homosexual or lesbian is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. It's not a 12-step program that some human invented. It's not some medication. It's not to appease you by redefining marriage. It is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's why the Apostle Paul who pastored this church at Corinth and the Apostle Paul who gave the good news in the gospel to homosexuals and lesbians and adulterers and pedophiles and they believed it and got saved. That's why Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the good news of Jesus Christ the Savior who died on the cross for sinners and rose again to ensure their forgiveness. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it, the gospel, is the power of God. The power of God. The same power that created the universe out of nothing. Amazing. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead three days later. That is the power of God. It's creative power. Supernatural power. It is infinite power. I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation, for forgiveness of sin, for changing a sinner into a saint. That is the power He's talking about. I'm not ashamed of the Gospel. It is the power of God for salvation. Here it is. Here's how simple it is. To everyone who believes. That's it. That's it. you just got to believe in the Gospel. Believe the good news. Believe that you are a sinner. Believe that you can go to Jesus and confess your sin and ask Him to save you from your sin and He will. That's what it means to believe. Get this. This is kind of somewhat radical. You don't have to stop sinning before you can become a Christian. If, you, if your condition is that you've got to try to stop sinning before you can become a Christian, you'll never get saved. Because you can't stop sinning. You need God's help to help you stop sinning. He's the Savior. He's the only solution. So homosexuality is a forgivable sin. God is still saving homosexuals today. I know it firsthand. I've even seen it recently. It's amazing. Second Peter three nine. The Lord is patient toward you, sinner, not wishing that any sinner would perish, but that all would come to repentance and be forgiven and changed. That's good news. Second Peter three nine. God is forgiving the sin of homosexuals. God is changing the lives of homosexuals. I know this firsthand. In 1993, I was the head coach of the women's basketball team at the Masters College. We had to play Biola University twice, Christian College down in Southern California. The head coach at the time was Debbie Halliday. I became friends with Debbie Halliday because they slaughtered us every time we played. Tried to make inroads. But anyway, but Debbie played at UCLA. She started on the UCLA basketball team. They won the national championship when she was playing there. Phenomenal athlete. So I got to know her. Uh, she speaks. She hits the speaking circuit. She spoke for ACSI, which is the Association of Christian Schools International, in 1994, Southern California. I went to her seminar, and it was the testimony of a former lesbian. That was the title. Wow, that got my interest. Debbie Holiday, that's my friend. So I went and heard her speak into a room of about this many people. She gave her whole testimony. She got involved in lesbianism 
at a very early age. By the time she was 12, 13. I think she was dragged into it against her will. And then she made it a part of her lifestyle and engaged in lesbian homosexuality the entire time she was a teenager. She felt guilty, helpless. She couldn't change. Heard the Gospel and gave her life to Jesus Christ in 1978. And God saved Debbie. Changed her life forever. She married an incredibly godly man. They've been married 25 years. Three children. Two of them grown. One of her sons plays on the basketball team at Biola. Her husband is uh, the principal of the Christian school. She also serves at that Christian school as a teacher, educator, and the athletic director. Christian school. Served 11 years in Athletes in Action. Traveling, sharing her testimony, especially with female athletes where there's a high percentage of lesbian activity. Telling these women, God can change your life and He can do it with the Gospel. So that's my friend Debbie. That was 16 years ago. So homosexuality is a forgivable sin. He's still saving sinners like this. I want to close with this one. This is even closer to home. Here's somebody that Debbie and I, my wife Debbie and I, have been praying for for 21 years. Someone close to us? A lesbian? Got involved in drugs? Alcohol? Became an alcoholic? Tried to talk to her, witness to her, pray for her, be a light to her. For the most part, she just rejected us and turned us, tuned us out of her life for about 17 years. Heard nothing. And then apparently in early 2009, she gave her life to Jesus Christ. This letter was sent to uh, Debbie and I in March of 2009 this year. This is recent. This is sweet. This woman was trapped in lesbian homosexuality for 20 years, maybe more. Now she's saved and she says this, I am so grateful to be walking with God today. My life has changed so much and God has been blessing me every day. The closeness I felt with the family during the weekend as they spent time recently together was just one of the many ways God is blessing my life today. I felt closer with you because she got to spend time with Debbie and everyone that I ever have before which told me that it was only me keeping myself separated from God and from the love a family has to offer. I regret all the years I spent being stiff-necked, as the Bible says. I was definitely that. I no longer live that lifestyle. All those years, I thought it was you, all of you that were different, and that I was okay, which I see now was a delusion. God has shown me that it was only myself that kept me separated. And once I opened the door, God was knocking on for so many years, I felt a new freedom and a new peace. It is true that you become renewed when you let the Lord into your life. I am so grateful for all of your prayers. I love you. And it was so great to laugh again. 
and to talk about our younger days. I look forward to many more times like that. I read the Bible daily and I am so excited about all the things I am learning. I'm finding out that everything you told me all along is so true. That every question is answered in the book. It is so exciting as every day I learn more and more unfolds in front of me and even the simplest questions or issues, sure enough, are answered in the Bible. Thank you for all your prayers over these years. I have a new life. I have a family that I love dearly and that love me back in Christ's love, the real kind of love. It is a beautiful thing. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank You for this warning. Thank You for the church, which is the conduit, the messenger of the Gospel, the good news, the saving news of Jesus Christ, the Savior who willingly came down here, lived the perfect life, said no to sin, said yes to the cross, died for sin, absorbed the Father's wrath for sinners, rose again from the dead, reigns on high, loves the world and is wooing and calling sinners to Himself. Thank You so much for that great truth. God, I do pray that if anybody here in our congregation is continually struggling with sin or any kind of sin, that they just go to You, the Savior. You'd soften their heart, draw them to Yourself, and let them know what it means to be a saint, to be washed, to be sanctified, to be set apart for You and in the family of God. Thank You so much for the Gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ. We commit this day to You, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650 630 0009.